Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. Our guest this week is CBS sports writer Kyle Porter. Kyle writes and podcasts about golf for CBS and he has done since 2012. Like many of our guests, he was an outsider in the media world when he first started. He didn't go to journalism school, but he has a passion for writing and a passion for sports and he's carved out a strong following by developing his own unique tone of voice. In 2021, Kyle wrote his first book called Normal Sport, which was born out of a running joke with his audience about the absurdities of golf. He has now written and self-published three books and he writes a newsletter under the same branding. Even if you're not a golf fan, there are so many interesting areas to explore about media with Kyle. From the rise of independent publishers like our friends at No Laying Up, working within a big media business like CBS, covering live sports and the process of creating content independently. He has a lived experience of the full spectrum. I hope you enjoy this discussion with the great Kyle Porter. Kyle, you have a very enviable job. For me, at least anyway, you get to write about golf week in, week out. But I'm always interested in the differences between what people perceive someone's job to be and what the job actually entails. So I would love to know what you'd say is most misunderstood about what you do. Yeah, it's a good question. Before I answer that, I'd actually like to know when you say you have an enviable job, this is not my podcast, I don't mean to turn this around on you. Why do you say that? What is the reason behind saying that? I guess I love sports. In particular, I love golf. And so just the thought of spending all my days watching golf, thinking about golf, there seems to be a good excuse to be able to play golf, to get into touch with what golf is really about, and then compare and contrast that with the professional landscape. So that's, I guess, where I come from. I enjoy my own job, just to be clear. But I think you have a particularly fun job as well. No, it is. And some of that is true, right? Whenever you go on the road and cover the US Open or cover the PGA Championship, you're oftentimes in places that are, especially like the Open Championship. Last year when I went to St. Andrews, you're in very golf-rich places and oftentimes with friends that you've built up over the years. So you can not only play, but just immerse yourself in it in ways that I probably wouldn't if I didn't have this job. I think the most misunderstood thing about my job is often two things. One, when I'm going to tournaments, like if I go to the Masters, people are like, oh, you're so lucky. You get to be at the Masters all week. And it's great. But also, I'm not posting up on 16, drinking a beer, hanging out with my friends, betting on who's going to hit the green and things like that. You're running around that place. You're trying to get quotes. You're trying to think about stories. You're trying to invest yourself creatively. And then the other thing that is a little bit misunderstood or people think that is not really true is that you play golf all the time. That it is true on the road. I actually play a lot on the road, but I've got four kids at home. And when I'm at home, I'm 
grinding out work and then taking care of family and doing things like that. So that's definitely people conflate writing about and thinking about and talking about golf with playing golf. And those are obviously very different things. Has it changed your relationship with the sport? Sometimes I've heard of people who are in love with basketball, but then they go into working for a basketball magazine or something in that specific field. And then the enjoyment loses its luster because your hobby is now work and it's hard to separate the two. Has it changed your own relationship with golf at all? That's a good question. And it's one that I've thought about. Before I covered golf, I started a website that covered Oklahoma State football and basketball. And that was my background. And over time, as I ran that and worked on that, I did fall out of love with this thing that I really enjoyed growing up, which was Oklahoma State athletics. You get too close to it and you start to see some of the cracks in it. And your innocence, I think, is part of the love of it when you're younger. And as you get older and get closer to it, it gets harder to love it. My relationship with golf has been interesting because I've really felt, I was telling somebody this the other day, I've really felt myself struggling with my love for professional golf right now. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I think most of that is this sort of two-year brouhaha between the PGA Tour and Liv. And some of that's been fun to cover because I think it's this intersection of a lot of different interesting things like psychology and money and relationships and just all these different things that you don't talk about a ton in sport, but it's gotten really tiring. I've come into 2024 honestly not loving professional golf as much as I have in the past. And that's been difficult, but I've found myself, Matt, this job has made me fall more in love with golf as my own individual endeavor than I would have thought. My mother played at a really high level as an amateur. She played in a couple of US women's amateurs. So it was in our family growing up. I didn't play a ton growing up. I played baseball, but it was baked into the DNA of our family a little bit. And I've found myself really falling back in love with that kind of what we all have childlike enjoyment of this ridiculous game, maybe more so than ever. So in some ways, I've fallen out of love with some of the professional part of it. And I hope that's temporary. It might be permanent. I don't know. But fallen more in love with just my personal relationship to the game. Really interesting. I suppose you could always go back to college sports too. There's a lot of pure amateurism going on over there right now. For sure. Yeah. The oil money in college sports somehow is superseded by the oil money in professional golf right now. So we've come full circle on that. Yeah. You went from Boone Pickett's to the Middle East. Exactly. Quite the transition. I'm curious, you work for a big brand, a mainstream media entity in CBS, which is very different or feels very different than independence. We had no laying up on. We love those guys. How much do you think about differences between sitting under a big umbrella like CBS versus something independent upstart like no laying up? Do you view them as drastically different jobs or is there more similarities than the outsiders would think? There's certainly drastically different organizations, right? Where you've got a very small entity with the fried egg or no laying up, eight to 10 people each. It's a small business. Both of those entities have been extremely successful and have a ton of people that I look up to both personally and professionally. So organizationally, obviously CBS, I think we've merged with other companies two or three times since I've been there. So it's just a different thing altogether. But I think the actual job itself, CBS has been really good about, and I didn't know this would be the case going in, but they've been good about, hey, do your own thing. 
within certain parameters, there's things that no laying up or Friday can do, be critical of the broadcast, or there's just different paths that they can go down that I just can't because of my relationship with bigger CBS and things like that. But they've been awesome about, hey, you can creatively think of different columns to write. There might've been one or two times where they're like, hey, don't tweet that. They've been very open about, hey, be as creative as you want. And if it goes too far, we'll tell you to rein it back in. So in terms of the big picture, I would say, yeah, they're obviously very different. But in terms of the day-to-day Here's what you're actually doing, creating content, writing columns. I wouldn't say it's that much different. I would say how people view it is a little bit different, like players. I think players are drawn to this, the no laying up worldview, I guess I would say. They look at CBS and they think when they see somebody like me who writes for CBSSports.com, they think Jim Nance and Tony Romo and big organizationally. And that's true of us organizationally. It's not necessarily true of me. When they see No Laying Up, they see guys like Solly or Andy Johnson with the Fried Egg. They see guys who are in love with golf, and they don't necessarily associate me with that, even though I would say my view of golf is probably more on the Solly side than it is on like the Jim Nance side of things, if that makes sense. So that's a very long answer to your question, but that's how I view both of those organizations. And can you just draw the distinction between the Jim Nance CBS and the CBS that you work within? Are they really close, or is it actually pretty different week to week? When I started out, they were very separate. So every master's, the broadcasters do this conference call where writers like me are on the calls and you have writers from ESPN and all these different places. And they'll ask the broadcasters questions. Who do you think is going to win the master's? What's your favorite memory? All this different stuff. And I remember being on a call and I asked Jim Nance something and he answered and he got to the end of it. And he was like, a lot of people on this call probably think you and I see each other all the time and spend a lot of time together. He goes, that's not actually true, but I wanted to commend you for your work. And I really enjoy all the things that you're doing. He's been very generous on that side of things. I found him to be a very generous and kind person just in my dealings with him. But to answer your question, I think over time, we've come closer together in that we have a platform now called CBS Sports HQ. And so what that is, is sort of a, I call it ESPN News, but for CBS and it's free. You can watch it on Apple TV. I go to the chiropractor and it's on their TV there. I go to get a burger and it's on their TV there. You see it all over the place because it's you can just play it. It's free sports news, essentially. And what's happened is that outlet has galvanized all these CBS properties. So I'm on there two or three times a week, but also Jim Nance and Trevor Immelman will be interviewed after the Memorial or after the PGA Championship, and they'll be piped into CBS Sports HQ as well. So there's definitely a lot more closeness now than there was 10 years ago, 11 years ago when I started, but it's still a little bit siloed and a little bit probably more separate than people would think. Yeah, I guess the internet has had a huge impact on that stuff, flattening the, the media business. Matt asked about the differences between mainstream and independence in terms of the similarities of what you're actually covering in golf. I'm interested in storytelling in the sport generally. A year or two ago, there was this big announcement that Netflix was going to come in and they were going to do a documentary and it's going to be very Drive to Survive-esque and it's going to attract a bunch of these new fans. You've talked about how Liv has helped people fall out of love with a professional game in some ways. What would you pick out as the good and the bad of storytelling in golf? Who would you point to as being good at it. And this can include players or media organizations or things like Full Swing. It's a really good question. I think one of the good things that these new organizations and independent entities like Noena, like the Golfer's Journal, 
even Jeff Shackelford, who's been in and out of both, right? He's been with Golf Channel. Now he's on his own. He's been on both sides of it. I mentioned Fried Egg. Joseph Lamagna is somebody that is a really smart, great thinker about golf. He's young. He's in his 20s. And he just thinks really deeply about a lot of different things. I think a lot of those sort of independent, almost like these derivatives of what I call golf Twitter, which is the No Lane Up, the Shane Bacon, Brendan Porath, myself, Kevin Van Valkenburg, all these different people, is that I think in a lot of ways, the generation before us, they didn't think super creatively. Now, what they did do better than us, certainly better than myself, is they reported very well. So they were out there, they were reporting. They did a really good job of that, but they didn't think about, I'm going to reference No Lane Up a lot, but what if we went and made a series about playing golf in Scandinavia and put really awesome music to it and we toured Scandinavia? Now, that's an extreme example of what I'm talking about, but I think what a lot of us have done is really forced the industry to hopefully just think more creatively about how we're covering golf, how we're covering sports. My wife said this after I wrote Normal Sport 3. She's like, you don't really write about golf. And I was like, "Uh, I think I do. I think that's what my paycheck says. She's like, no, you write about life and your experience with life. And golf is just the vehicle that you use. And I found that to be really true, not just of myself, but you watch Strapped, you listen to Shotgun Start, all these different things. You're really talking about your experience with life, which I think is relatable to everybody. Everybody experiences life. And you're using this thing that we all love or have a relationship with to do that. And man, that's a very different thing than I think what the generation before us was doing. You can argue whether it's as journalistically pertinent. You can argue whether it's fanboyish or whatever, but it's certainly different. And I think that it's been a mostly positive experience for the industry. Yeah, it reminds me of Bill Simmons in some ways and what he pioneered with what was originally hated by journalists, I think, and then slowly adopted just in terms of taking things down, associating it with normal life or pop culture or other things, but telling the story in a different way. A key ingredient in this feels like it's the game itself. And when I think about different sports, I think for a long time, the NBA had this reputation for really allowing fans to engage with it, being active on social media, putting up clips just so that you could do more with them versus the MLB, which was really restrictive. And I think that hurt them quite a bit. The NFL was a little bit different, I think, protecting the monopoly that they built and the stronghold that they had on all the media. But where do you think golf fits into all of these just in terms of doing the best that they can to engage with the audience, to influence people to play the game? You guys are acting, in my view, like ambassadors for the game and encouraging people to get involved. Do you feel like the sport does a good job of that? And maybe specifically like the PGA and the professional sport itself does a good job of fueling that? I would say no. It's funny. I think sometimes the PGA Tour and some of these professional organizations act more like the NFL, but they don't have the moat that the NFL has built, right? And so you're like, I get why you're doing that. I videoed off my TV an interaction between Jordan Spieth and a fan at the Tournament of Champions last year, so January 2023. And he was telling these people, they were just outside the ropes, and he was talking to them, and he said something like, hey, I understand that you guys want to gamble on what we're doing. He's like, I'd be doing the same thing, but could you just keep it down while I'm putting? Which I thought was hilarious. It was a really innocent, funny, great interaction. And I took a video of it. It was like a 15-second clip, tweeted it out. It got taken down. I got an email. 
all this stuff. And I totally understand, right? I'm sure there is some line in the 500-page contract that the PGA Tour has with all these different media organizations where this person at this management level is required to email people like me. I had no problem with that. And we had a good interaction and all that. My issue is more philosophical with you really have these people, like you said, Matt, that are trying to be ambassadors, that are trying to... Now, are they incentivized to do so to gain followers on social media? Absolutely. But that also benefits your sport. It's almost like these people that are volunteers for your organization that are evangelizing for the PGA Tour. And so philosophically, I get it if you're the NFL where it's almost you're this behemoth that you don't need stuff like that. Just 35 million people are going to watch on Thanksgiving, whether I'm tweeting about the NFL or not. Right. But if you're golf, man, another thousand people, another 5,000 people, that's not insignificant. So yeah, philosophically, I get frustrated with sort of the media interaction. It's gotten I think, I guess a little bit better because I think some of these organizations' eyes have been open to things like that, but I don't think it's where it should be. How much of a relationship do you have with the organizations that either host these events or run the tour in terms of covering it? I imagine, and I know that you have a bunch of good ideas and other people will as well, but how much of that is ever fed into the system? It's a good question because I think one thing that people don't understand about golf or haven't thought a ton about is... The NFL runs everything, right? They run the regular season, they run the playoffs, they run the Super Bowl, they own all of it. And with golf, it's very different in that the PGA Tour runs most of it, but the four major championships are run by four other organizations, four separate organizations. Jeff Shackelford calls it the five families, which is hilarious. And I think a lot of what has played out over the last couple of years has been the problems that you've seen have been exacerbated by the fact that there's so many different power players in the game that Augusta National wants one thing, the USGA, which runs the US Open, wants a different thing. The PGA Tour has these incentives. And so it's really difficult. It's simpler if it's just live in the PGA Tour. It's not just live in the PGA Tour. It's also these other four organizations. And that really complicates things. I would say I have the least amount of relationship with the RNA just because I have the least amount of interaction with them. I haven't gone to that many open championships. I've been over there a little bit, but not as much as I would like. And then the other four organizations, PGA Tour, PGA of America, which runs the Ryder Cup and the PGA Championship, the Augusta National, which runs the Masters and the USGA, I have good relationships with it. It's funny because I think you can build up goodwill with a lot of people if you just say funny things on Twitter. It sounds ridiculous, but no ain't up started because Solly said funny things on Twitter. Now they have a really thriving organization and people are just drawn to that. They gravitate toward that. PJ of America asked me to write a hype video for the 2025 Ryder Cup. They're using it for internal sales for Beth Page when they go up there. And it's like a four or five minute video. I got to write the narration for it. And then Dan Hicks of NBC narrated it. So just stuff like that, you build up some goodwill over time when people can tell if it's just a job or if you love it. And I have loved it. It's been the best. It's been a tremendous job. And just, I love writing. And so getting to write about something that I have really enjoyed, I think people can sense that, they can tell it. And I think that has really engendered some good relationship with those organizations. How much do you deal with that aspect of sales, advertising, anything on the monetization side of things? Does that influence your day often? Obviously, Doing something like that, writing the script, certainly plays into it. Do you have to think about that much? Does it drive some of the content that you create? 
how much do you see that side of the business? With CBS, I don't really see it at all, which is, again, they've done such a good job of really saying, hey, this is your lane running it. And I'm very appreciative for that because I think it would be difficult if it's a big enough organization. And this is where you mentioned the different size, like the independent organization versus the sort of more corporate one. We've got people that do all those things. And maybe they do them for different sports, but somebody handles selling podcast ads. I don't have to go do that. Now, I will say with my own brand, with Normal Sport, which I've been writing a newsletter, writing three books over the last three years to sum up the golf year, I've started to deal with it more. And it's such a different thing. I love writing. I just want to sit down and after we get off this call and just write for three hours at my computer and then go eat lunch. That's all I want to do. But you have to get a sponsor for the February newsletter, right? And you have to figure out what's our giveaway for March when this company... Just different things like that. And that's a completely different skill. I've been grateful because I've brought on some people that have really helped out with that. And so that's allowed me to just do what I do. I think that's one of the biggest things that I've learned over the years is once you start to spread yourself too thin, all of a sudden you look up and you're like, I'm not even doing the thing that I love and that I'm good at anymore, which is crazy. I'm sort of describing middle management, I guess, in corporate America, but it's just not what I'm going for. I don't want to grow anything so big that I'm no longer doing the thing that I love because I think one of the best gifts in having a job is, do you love it? There's this great quote from Novak Djokovic in the, I think it was the Financial Times from a few years ago. And he said, I've been able to succeed at a high level for a long time because I love hitting the tennis ball. And you're like, it seems like a throwaway quote, but that's the whole thing right there. And I never want to get too far away from doing the thing that I love. I can understand the book, but even the newsletter, that's an extension of what you're already doing, but it does introduce a lot more work that comes onto your plate. What was the driving force behind that? And just curious about your experience with that versus the work at CBS and how different they feel. I think you explained some of it there. But is there a real initiative behind doing some of that independent stuff and Kyle Porter, the brand? There's a great quote. I think I heard it from... It might have been on y'all's podcast. It might have been on O'Shaughnessy's podcast, Jeremy Giffen. He said something like, the reward for great work is more work. And... It's totally true, right? Where if you do great work, you're just going to get more of the same, hopefully. And that has been a reward for me is the work that I've done has been good enough that people have come to it. And I'm like, oh, I get to keep doing this. And so for me, the newsletter is very much a creative outlet to where it's the stuff that I probably wouldn't write for CBS because it's either too silly or too serious goes to one extreme or the other. With CBS, it's more down the middle, which is totally how organizations like that work and what I'm happy to provide. But the newsletter for me is I get to fill in everything else that I've been thinking about, whether it's silliness or seriousness. We talk about writing the newsletter with humor and heart. That's the way that I think about writing it. And for me, it's just a creative outlet for that. And was that encouraged or was that a conversation with CBS at the time to say, hey, this is something I want to do for my own creative outlet? It's still going to be around golf. It's still be, and there are lots of benefits that go back to CBS by you doing this yourself. But I wonder how sometimes you hear from these big organizations, challenging thing for someone to do within it. They've been great about it. I went to them a couple of years ago with this book idea and I said, Hey, I'm not going to let it interfere with my work at CBS. I'm still going to provide all the content that we need for our organization. And they're like, Yeah. 
scratch that itch. Again, I probably don't reflect on this enough because they don't have to do that. They could say, no, we can't do that. But they've been really generous with a lot of different things. And the book and newsletter are certainly included in that. And I think that they do a good job of understanding what you said, which is that there's some back-end benefits that maybe they don't get up front, but that if you're growing your own brand, like that benefits them in some way at some point down the road. And I think not only that, but just they understand that they want their employees to be creatively fulfilled. And if that takes writing a ridiculous newsletter about giraffes on fairways in South Africa to do that, then so be it. I'm very grateful to them for the way that they've handled all that. I think it's a very unique and fun angle that you've taken with normal sport, where it came from and how it manifested into a book initially. And I think you self-published it. Once people tell you that, the next sentence is, I would never recommend anyone else ever do that. So I'd be curious for the end-to-end experience. First question is, how did it come about? I just started noticing you watch enough golf and you're on Twitter enough. And some of this stuff is weird. Some of this stuff is just... I think golf is so different from a lot of sports that we watch, right? Basketball or swimming, a lot of Olympic sports. It's played indoors, even a lot of football now. Baseball, domes, it's played indoors. It's very contained. It's very constricted. And golf is like, you literally might see giraffes running down the fairway. It's very much in nature and there's animals and it's unique. There's not anything that I can think of, maybe ultra marathoning or cross country that's out in nature like that. So you just, you run into all these situations that you're like, I literally don't think I've ever seen this before. In my mind, I have the image of Tom Kim, who I think got himself into a pond last year and took off all of his shoes and his socks. He looked like he was cleaning up an oil spill in the North Sea or something. It was absurd. So you get a lot of that. And it became a tongue-in-cheek thing. I can't believe, one, I'm covering this. Two, I love this sport. And I think people really identified with it. I don't even really look for stuff that much anymore. People just tweet me stuff all the time. Oh, normal sport. So that turned into a book. And the self-publishing thing, I feel like I created sort of a publishing company because I hired some different contractors to edit, to design, to format, to copy edit, all these different things, which is what a lot of what a publishing company does. The hardest part for me out of all of it, the first year we did digital only. So we just basically made a PDF the way that... I don't know if you guys follow Shea Serrano, but he wrote 100 pages about The Office or 80 pages about Scrubs. And he'll just charge 20 bucks and send it to you. And it's hilarious and awesome. And so that was a little bit of my inspiration for doing the PDF the first year. Last year, we started printing physical books. And that was hard. And the reason it was hard is because it's hard to find a printer and distribution is very difficult. There's a reason that Amazon makes a trillion dollars a year or whatever they make. Distribution and logistics around that are really hard. Thankfully, I do have four kids, so I just put them to work and have them box up books and ship them out. But I really love reading a physical book. And so to have the physical book in my hands was really meaningful to me. But man, the profitability and the margins on it, that was difficult. That was not something I anticipated. It's a lot easier to charge somebody 15 bucks for a PDF and have a 94% profit margin on it than it is to figure out printing and distribution of a physical book. You've written a trilogy now. So you've done three over the last three years, reflecting on the past year. Do you now feel stuck that you have to write one? In the intro to this one, you said, I was in a bit of a rut after the Ryder Cup thinking, now I have to write this. Where are we at now, headspace-wise? It's a good question. I think that I've decided that for this year, I don't know that I've said this publicly yet, but I think I'm going to take 
newsletter material throughout the year and just repackage it and say, these were my thoughts throughout the year. Here's the book. One, it'll be less work. Two, I think people that buy it oftentimes buy it to support or to have as like a commemorative thing. So we've been talking a little bit about, okay, could we turn this into a subscription thing where you charge a hundred bucks for the year? And at the end of the year, you get a few things throughout the year, but at the end of the year, you get this really nice, we go all out on printing. Do you guys remember the Grantland books that Simmons printed? I've got 10 of those up there. They're really cool to hold. There's really great stories in them. Something like that, I think could be really interesting. And it saves a lot of times at the end of the year, Dom, I feel like I'm just regurgitating things that I've said either in the newsletter or on Twitter or whatever. You can go back and edit it. And I'll probably go back and edit with a lot of footnotes and just this thing I said in January, that was really stupid. (laughs) But I won't try to reinvent the wheel at the end of the year. I'll just take what I said through the newsletter, not pull everything out, but pull the meaningful stuff and turn that into the book. Yeah, there's something interesting. I wondered why you had the Grantland books. And I was wondering if they would do that again with the Ringer Obviously, they've moved a little bit away from some of the journalism stuff, but they still do a lot of long form. But I think your point on the challenges associated with printing and logistics around a physical book are so challenging. Do you feel like now that you've done it once, the second time around will be 50% easier or 65% easier? Like, How much easier does it get putting aside the profit margins, which I know are just a challenge? I think it does get easier. One of my ambitions for this year is to go and find a... I had a printer in South Carolina. It was not a local printer. I know there's printers in Dallas. I would like to go and literally tour a book printing facility and say, how do you do this? I just want to understand. I literally have no idea how a PDF gets made. From a coding standpoint, no clue how that works. But I do know the process of it. I have no clue how a book gets made. It makes no sense to me. I know there's probably a hundred machines in a facility and they're putting the spine together and they're covering all these different things. But I want to know more about that process just to understand the whole thing. Because I know the beginning of it is me thinking and writing about it. And then eventually it ends up in your hands or a reader's hands or whatever. I want to understand that process better because I think it will give me a better appreciation for the entire process. And I think it'll make my process smoother and better in the future. There's an excellent blog post by Nick Kokonis, who was a guest on Invest Like the Best and had this awesome conversation, mostly about the restaurant industry and all the challenges associated with it. But he did the same thing with the book industry, and they were creating cookbooks for some of the restaurants. And to hear him go through what really costs money versus what doesn't. And he explains so much of it. And then obviously, he gets inside and sees a lot of the printers that go overseas, I think, to do a lot of the printing. But it's a fascinating story and maybe it would make for a good video business breakdown. So we'll add that to our list too. We could collaborate on that. Thinking about even something that's a form of interesting content that I think a lot of people would be interested in. And it's not the story of today. How do you think about coming up with that stuff, that original idea, original storytelling, avoiding just the group think that captures everybody on Twitter for a day and actually starting the conversation rather than jumping onto a pre-existing conversation? Yeah, that's a good question. I find myself able to do that the best when I am reading other disciplines. So I'm reading Morgan Housel's books right now, Psychology of Money and Same as Ever. And so when I get out of the golf discipline or completely out of sports even, and I read about money or theology or really anything, you start to be able to, I think, connect some dots that 
create original thinking. I say original, nothing is original, right? It's really just how you are. All the same ingredients have been out there forever. Which ingredients are you using and how are you uniquely putting them together? I try to read a lot outside of golf. I think that really keeps my mind stimulated toward thinking at least more creatively or more originally than I otherwise would. It's hard because what you just said, I find myself doing a lot. I get so sucked into Twitter or just reading Golf Digest or Golf Channel or whatever during a major championship week. You're like, oh, that's my opinion too. And you're just getting in line. You're just a number. And I think what really stands out is somebody like a Morgan Housel, who he just connected a bunch of dots. His writing is not, I wouldn't call it like Brian Phillips type writing. Brian Phillips, who writes for The Ringer, writes about soccer. He does stuff in writing that I'm like, I can't do that. I could write for 200 years and I wouldn't be able to do that. But somebody like a Morgan Hauser, you're like, I think I could do that from a writing standpoint, but from a thinking standpoint, he's different. He's pretty special. And those are the people that I really try to emulate is the people that, hey, get outside your thing, think about some other stuff, and then come back and connect it to your thing, whatever that is, whether it's golf or real estate or whatever. And then you start to have some originality there, which I think can be interesting. How do you think your writing differs if you've been on the ground for a tournament versus at home watching the coverage on television? I told this story a couple of weeks ago. And I think when I'm at home, it can actually be more factually dense because I have so much information available at my disposal on my computer. The thing that's weird about a golf tournament that people maybe don't think about is when you go to a soccer game or a football game or a baseball game, the whole thing's in front of you. You can sit in the press box and you see the whole thing. When you go to a golf tournament, you're really only seeing one group if you're out there following people on the golf course. I've been at tournaments, 2016 Masters, where I was following Jordan Spieth the whole time and he didn't win. And so you're like, I thought you were going to win and I had a bunch of stuff and I don't know what to do with it now. I ended up writing him anyway because the way he lost, it was such a big story. That was the story. But you can get caught there a little bit where you're out following two or three groups and somebody over here wins and you're like, I don't know what to write. And so I think from a data, from a facts, from a quote standpoint, if you're at home, it's all on your computer and that's really helpful. But experientially, I think it just gets inside you when you're there to where you can write with some emotion that you can't create that on your own at home. And an example of that, the other thing is observations. You have a ton of observations when you're there that you can't have at home because not everything is shown on camera. I was at the 2021 US Open, back nine on Sunday, Brooks Koepka is trying to win his third straight US Open, and he's playing with Ches Reeve. And it's the last nine of the tournament, heat of battle, middle of the competition, and they're out there comparing which dip they're both using, that they're both putting in their mouth. I feel like this just says a lot about who Brooks Koepka is. And you would never pick that up on TV. I used it in my story. Just little stuff like that that's impossible to get at home makes being at the tournament super meaningful, I think. Yeah, and humanizes it as well. Do you have to decide when you're on the ground what you're going to try and write about that day? Have to either pick a player or pick a storyline or decide I'm going to go wherever the leaderboard tells me to go? A lot of times for us at majors, we'll take the Masters, for example, on Thursday. Like You might say, hey, Rory's playing early. Let's write something short on him, whether he does good or bad, because he's such a massive story at Augusta. So we might do that early. I might follow him for nine holes, come in, write something. And then at the end of the day, I know we're doing a lot of times early in the tournament, we'll do 
five thoughts on the day or 10 thoughts on the day. So I'll just pick up little notebooky type things throughout the day, whether it's a quote here or an anecdote that I saw. One year I was following Rory and he hit his dad with a golf ball on like the seventh hole. And he went over there. His dad was like, hey, could you sign a glove for me? (laughs) Which was hilarious. It wasn't on TV. It wasn't on camera. So just little things like that, you might fill up an end of the day piece with. And then obviously Sunday is you're going to do the winner or I guess in the 2016 master's case, you're going to do the loser. You're going to do speed. Saturday and Sunday at majors are really interesting because they happen so fast. Thursday and Friday are really long days. It's all spread out. But on Saturday and Sunday, you don't really care that much about the guys that are teeing off at 9, 10, 11, even noon. Once you get into the one o'clock, the round just goes by so fast that things are moving very quickly at that point. There's a lot of thinking on the fly of what angle you're going to take and what direction you're going to go in. How much are you, along with other media members, moving together in a group? There's a lot of group because a lot of times, especially on Saturday, Sunday, you're following the same guys, right? It's the five guys that are in contention. Thursday, Friday, there's not as much group. You might say, oh, I'm going to write something about Ernie Els and nobody else cares about that. Do you get suspicious watching other people split off from the back? Or is there any gamesmanship when it comes to the journalism side? I don't think there's gamesmanship. I will say I love so many of the guys out there and women out there. We become really good friends. And so personally, it's more fun to be in a group and just banter and joke and whatever. But for my job, I like being alone because it's just so much easier for observation. And I really have a tough relationship with those days because I'm like, man, for my job, I really want to be alone. But I also just enjoy being around these people and talking to them and watching golf with them. So I flip back and forth between those two things throughout a week. And you mentioned a little bit of the storyline that you can take from what's happening on the course that's not being picked up by TV. And the whole concept of it is very interesting. If you can overhear a huddle in a basketball game, that'd be one thing. But it doesn't actually happen that often that you can get so close to players. So it's a unique setup. And I am curious just in terms of how much that influences the great storytelling. How much do you attribute to getting scuttlebutt or unique things that come out on the course versus providing the observation, the recap, and just your style about what everybody else is seeing. Do you ever think about that? I want certain amount of secrets that other people can't get elsewhere, or I just want to be able to recap things in my own artistic way. I'm more so the latter, recap things in my own artistic way, but it also depends on who you're following. If you're following if you're following Scotty Scheffler around, you're not going to get anything because he doesn't really talk. Or when he does, it's very subtle, it's very quiet. If you're following Jordan Spieth around, you're going to get pages of stuff because he doesn't stop talking. He won't shut up. I was following him and Justin Thomas at the Ryder Cup, and I think they talked for all 17 holes that they played. It definitely depends on the player, and you don't want to write stuff that is, oh, I overheard this secretive thing that they were talking about or whatever, but you get into really unique situations inside the ropes because I remember the 2016 Ryder Cup at Hazeltine in Minnesota It's such a weird thing. You're not on the field when guys are playing soccer with them. You're not in the dugout when guys are playing baseball, but you're there in the arena with golfers. I had to go to the bathroom. I'm in this porta potty. I come out and Phil Mickelson's waiting to get in. And I'm like, I'm really sorry. I thought you guys had all moved on. And you try to not put yourself in those situations, but you invariably over time will end up in them. And so you're definitely in it. And you can get some really interesting interaction between players and media. 
I've had guys come over and talk to me while they're playing. And you're like, are you supposed to be doing this? Am I supposed to be doing this? Golf is a very unique sport. Just what you said, where you're not on the bench during a basketball game and you don't hear stuff, but you do in golf. And when you're out at a tournament, it definitely shapes the way that you're writing. When you think about golf and you compare it to where you came from with college sports, college athletics, it seems like in golf, there has been this adoption by, I'll phrase it as new media, but taking what was previously a polished sport presented in a very specific way, and you only saw just basic reactions. And now you're getting coverage that's more playful, more humorous, just accepting a little bit of the joke in part of it. How do you think about that and applying it elsewhere? Do you still think there's opportunities to do that in other sports where it hasn't happened? And you could either use college sports as an example and talk about the coverage there or anything else when you think about how specific it is to golf and how much could it be applied elsewhere? I think it's pretty specific to golf. And the reason why, Matt, is golf is the only sport where you're also going out and playing. It's so relatable in that sense that when Mackenzie Hughes misses a putt at Kapalua last week and does a fist pump, and I tweet about it, you're like, I've done that. I've literally been there before. And so when you say you're in on the joke, you're almost literally in on the joke because you've been in that position before. Can be true in maybe basketball or soccer. I don't know about you guys. I don't put on the pads and go play football after I watch the AFC championship. That's not a thing that happens. So tennis is probably like this as well, but it's so relatable, especially to guys that played growing up or played in college that are very good, where you're like, man, I've been there before. And so there's a relatability there that I don't know that it can exist in other sports that get covered. I haven't blown the windmill dunk on a fast break in hoops that often. Only on NBA Jam. (laughs) Exactly. This has been so much fun. I want to get you out on one last question. And by the way, it's only made me more envious of your job, this conversation, your stories. (laughs) be totally remiss of us not to mention Tiger in a discussion about golf and media. He has been the needle, even when he's not playing. I would love, and it's going to be a very open-ended, terrible question, but I would love your reflections on Tiger and the media world and whether you should or shouldn't write about him or his succession. So there you go. It's a terrible question, but would love to hear anything you think about. I've thought about this a lot, so it's not a terrible question. I think I have a weird relationship, not with Tiger himself, but with sort of the figure of Tiger, because I don't know if my job exists, if not for Tiger. There was a great tweet from this guy. His Twitter handle is Antifaldo, which is spelled Antifa. It's, I don't know, it's very funny. But he said, golf is one Tiger away from being tennis, right? And in tennis, I don't think there's the number of writing or media jobs that there is in golf right now. And so I'm very grateful for his career. But I think that we've sort of entered into this phase with him that can be frustrating because it's this cycle of Tiger's back. He might win major 16 and you're like, I don't know, man, can he walk? And then people get really excited and then he gets hurt again and then he has surgery and then they get excited. Having to pretend like he is still what he was at 30, I think some fans still act like that. And so you're like, this is not it. And so that part of it just gets really tiring. But I think broadly speaking, he changed the whole industry. I think he's a genius. I think he is genuinely genius. And that word gets thrown around and overused. I was talking to Rory McIlroy. We were talking a couple of months ago. And we were talking pretty deeply about some different things. Rory was talking about how his joy for golf has really increased over time. He said it kind of decreased initially after you turn pro and you win a bunch and you're, okay, what now? And he's really tried to do some things 
to increase that joy over time, like playing more with his dad and just things that you and I would do. And I said, what is Tiger's joy for golf? Does it still exist? And he said something like, I don't know about this area, but his love and obsession with the science and almost the minutia, the atomization of golf is extraordinary. He wants to know what's the ball going to do when I move my left hand half inch this way? And what if I open my club face and try to hit a spinny cut from 50 yards out this way? He was like, he's obsessed with that stuff. And I find it fascinating when you come across obsessives like that. I'm obsessed with people that are obsessed with things. And I think they're really interesting to study. And I think you see a lot of documentaries made about people like that. These are just my open-ended thoughts about Tiger. I don't know if you have anything more specific off of that, but that's just some of the things that I think about when I think about Tiger Woods. No, that was just exactly what I was looking for. I mean, we could spend another hour talking about Tiger Woods, but I'll get you out of here. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and I would encourage everyone to go follow you on Twitter, pick up the books, read the newsletter. That final story where he mentioned golf is one Tiger Woods away from being tennis. That is actually perfect. You couldn't say it better. We should make that a clip, although we might have to attribute it to Antifaldo. It's a tricky thing with clips. Where do you decide to cut it off? He's got big distribution, so maybe Antifaldo can help us from our burner account somewhere. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And I think you're spot on with that. But I'm both sorry and not sorry for bringing you into my golfing world again. I hope you enjoyed it. No, it does great for our audience. The audience clearly cares about it as well. It's super interesting just because there's so much that's unique about the sport, but also I think you could apply elsewhere. To me, I know we've covered tennis as well, but it made me think about how much coverage is there like this in tennis? Is there a place for it? Because you would think there's some similarities there. And then just hearing about his own journey and how he balances the corporate thing versus being independent, how he can speak freely. There was a lot there that's interesting to get the perspective of somebody who's very much inside that world. Sport gets lumped together from a business perspective. And people look around in sports and say, that sport over there is doing that. That seemed to work. We should try the same thing without really thinking through the nuances of how their sports are structured. He talks about NFL and how people try and copy the NFL without realizing that they don't have the monopoly of eyeballs that particular sport has. And I think the same with storytelling in golf and a few other sports with Drive to Survive, where everyone looked at Formula One and saw this Netflix show and how it was growing the game, particularly among a younger audience for them. And they've all tried to replicate it. And I think both tennis and golf have done one, but it hasn't been as big a success in any way that Formula One one was. My cheap takeaway from that is that drive to survival, that model only works in sport where death is a real risk. Anything that's not flirting with death doesn't work as a Netflix show because it's not scary enough. Would you put football in that category? Because I think when you think about Drive to Survive, I actually think that Hard Knocks is the original version of this. Group them together. Yeah, that's got enough danger in it. Tour de France was the other one that I enjoyed a lot because, again, there was a risk of severe casualty in that particular show. Whereas golf, tennis, they're too nicey-nicey walking in the grass versus sport where there is real risk involved. Stephen Pressfield says the stakes need to be high. Somebody's going to be able to die. Maybe that extends to the screen as well. I think there's something to it. I think if they gave it a few more shots, I don't know. I think there could be something and you could see some success from it, especially something like tennis, where it feels like a lot of those guys are mentally unstable. You're on this island for so long and 
your upbringing oftentimes is associated with just being on that court all the time. I don't know. I think if they gave that one another shot, they could have some success. No, I think that's right. There's also an interesting thing with just golfers and tennis players being individual athletes and how their relationship with the media is different versus team sports. And like you see the NFL and football teams in the UK and how players get chosen by the media managers and then they're told how to perform or what to say and all this kind of stuff, whereas golfers need to figure it out by themselves. And I think McElroy has been a really interesting case study where early in his career, I think he said some dumb stuff. I think he didn't look great for a while and then it really cleaned up his image is the wrong word, but the way in which he interacts with media and has become very open and interesting character to follow. I think you see that. And it's one of the areas that I like following the sport versus some of the more put together sports where they're in, in teams. Yeah, pretty much anybody that's good in that sport is going to have a long career, right? Which feels different than what you would have with some of the major sports in the US where careers can be shorter. But you have somebody like LeBron where he's basically matured in the public eye and he hasn't made too many mistakes with the media, but it is impressive when you think about that. It's much more normal to go through something like you described with Rory where there's this evolution and maturation in terms of how they deal with things, which I think you would expect to see with most athletes. But yeah. I love that Kyle parlayed a bit on Twitter into three books and a newsletter. I think that's such an amazing anecdote. And just the fact that CBS is open to him doing this on the side, I think that shows what kind of an organization that is, because I don't think many similar statute organizations would be the same. Yeah, don't get any ideas. (laughs) I'd put you in the same bucket, to be honest. I was glad to hear him reference Shea Serrano, who I think is a interesting person to study when it comes to his career and how he's now with a sitcom on television, which I would not be surprised if it got picked up by major networks, has written a lot of stuff, but he's a really interesting story. And then Brian Phillips, who I do not read much of, but I feel like I have to read now after he gave that endorsement. So I love getting those tips. I've got some homework. I need to find out the spelling of the first person's name and then do some Googling. I'll help you out there. Any other thoughts? I think the other big piece of the discussion, particularly early on around mainstream media, CBSs versus your independence, like No Laying Up and Fried Egg, etc. I don't have many other thoughts other than what we've shared on the podcast before and what Kyle talked about here. But a whole Megas and Minos thing playing out again in a different sport and a different media business where you either need big scale or you need a very different point of view and you're able to create some of the content that he talked about there by No Laying Up and a few of the other those organizations. I wouldn't say there's a right answer because you talk to the guys at No Laying Up like we have and they talk about survival and how they have to do everything. And Kyle talks about, no, I just like writing, which I love that segment. And this is what I love to do. And I don't really want to worry about any of the other stuff because I just want to do what I love. And I have so much time for that versus Neil and the gang are having to fight every fire that comes their way themselves. Endless lessons there when it comes to independence versus big brands. And I think what you've seen is just the world converge where They both resemble one another a lot more now than they did 10 years ago. So I think you see a continuation of that for sure. And we asked him to take us on his book tour when he goes to the publishing house. That's Making Media Route 1, where we actually dissect how a book is made and published. On the ground, Big J Journalism reporting, coming soon. Through the eyes of Kyle Porter. Love it. Awesome. All right. Good one. I appreciate you making that invitation out there. (laughs) I'm excited to see what you come back with next because that was a good one. (laughs) 